You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you'll hear from law enforcement leaders sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. My name is David Weinraub. This episode is funded by U.S. Department of Justice's COPS Office, and the department's full disclaimer notice is available at the end of this podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the IACP or the COPS Office. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lois James to identify the impacts of sleep deprivation on police officer performance and well-being. Dr. James joins us from the Washington State University College of Nursing and the Sleep Performance Research Center. Thank you for taking the time to discuss such an important topic for the field. Let's get started. Why does getting enough proper sleep matter? Getting enough good quality sleep matters for several reasons. When we think about sleep and the impact of sleep restriction or not getting enough sleep, we think about it in both in terms of its short-term consequences and also in terms of its long-term consequences. And both are particularly important for um, people who work shifts, obviously police officers being included in that group. So the short-term consequences of not getting enough good sleep are mainly kind of safety related. So your risk of accident, your risk of injury, your risk of error are all increased when you're not getting enough sleep, when you're tired. So of course, on, on the flip side, you know, getting good quality sleep can protect you a little bit and can be kind of preventative against making that mistake, having an injury at work, getting into a road traffic collision because you're sleepy, all of those things. So, so that's kind of the short-term reasons that are really, you know, why, why we say it's really important to get good quality sleep and to get enough sleep. In the long term, day after day after week after month after year, and in some cases an entire career worth of not getting enough good quality sleep can lead to a whole host of health and wellness problems and really increase your risk of disease. And those diseases include um, cardiovascular diseases, psychological disorders, and then of course, um, sleep disorders as well. So again, you know, kind of the inverse or the flip side of that is if you do get enough good quality sleep, your risk of disease in the long term is going to be lower. Also, your risk of burnout, of dissatisfaction with the job, of just generally becoming worn down and miserable, you're going to protect against that as well if you are getting enough sleep and, and avoiding that really chronic long-term fatigue. You alluded to this a little bit in the previous question. Can you go over some of the high-level effects of poor sleep habits? Yes, absolutely. And, and I really think that, you know, in the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, your major problems with not getting enough sleep are going to be that increased risk of disease. You know, what it does to the body, what it does to your long-term health and wellness. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the major reasons why not getting enough sleep, you know, being consistently sleep deprived, sleep restricted, and in the case of shift workers, of course, add to that the fact that oftentimes they're trying to sleep when their body doesn't want to sleep and they're, they're having to be awake when their body does want to sleep. So, you know, if you're working evening or night shifts, for example, so that, that kind of circadian misalignment adds into to this problem of, of increasing your risk for disease in the long term. And, uh, and that would be the kind of the really major high level um, big picture effect or impact. 
of not getting enough sleep. Thank you for elaborating on that. What effect does lack of sleep or deprivation have on the body of any person? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are several effects that are fairly universal. So when we don't sleep enough, one of the, you know, the major effects is, is weight gain. You know, we, we know there's, this, there's a really strong connection between not getting enough sleep and gastrointestinal concerns and issues. Another major effect on the body, of course, I mean, the kind of the, the main effect on the body is fatigue. And um, when you're tired, it, it essentially makes everything, it makes everything harder, it makes everything worse. That then connects to increases in stress or decreases in resilience to stress, which can lead to any number of psychological disorders as well. So, I mean, the impacts are quite significant and they're quite far reaching. There doesn't seem to be any major disease or disorder or issue that isn't in some way aggravated by not getting enough sleep. So in a similar regard, how does sleep deprivation affect routine functioning and job performance of an individual? So that kind of brings us back to the, you know, what I, what I spoke about, this short-term impact of sleep restriction, you know, how it affects you day to day. So, um, you know, the kind of performance degradation that we see from fatigue, um, especially in policing, are quite far reaching. So we see, you know, I mean, a major one, of course, being drowsy driving and the increased risk of, of collision due to fatigue during driving. Add to that with policing, one of the one of the tasks that's often required of cops is to a certain degree, distracted driving. They're going to have to be attending to lots of things, but it doesn't stop there, you know? I mean, how police officers interact with members of the public is, is certainly affected by fatigue and by sleep restriction. We've seen from studies that implicit bias or, or the tendency to subconsciously associate a particular group of people with increased threat, for example, that tends to rise, that tends to be increased when police officers are sleep restricted. We've also seen that the tendency to de-escalate, both in terms of the will to de-escalate and then the skill to de-escalate is, is affected when, um, when police officers are especially tired. And that makes sense when you think about, you know, if you think back even to, you know, a, a time when you yourself have been particularly tired, you'll likely find that, you know, your, your temper was harder to hold your ability to communicate effectively was likely impaired as well. So I think across all walks of policing life, the one that seems to be a little bit, I don't want to say resilient to it, but, but the story that's quite a bit more complicated is use of deadly force, you know, in part, of course, because of the massive adrenaline um, dump that that kind of situation would provide to an officer. But there are some studies that kind of show, you know, that even use of deadly force might not be immune to the effects of fatigue. And, you know, it's possible that, that a threshold for making a critical decision is actually degraded a little bit or is reduced a little bit under extreme states of fatigue. You know, speed is favored. That was a lot of great information. Can you, at the same time, give us a little bit of insight into how a companion of a first responder is affected by sleep deprivation while, while their companions on the job. Absolutely. So, you know, that, that is a, that is a very, very good point. You know, the, the sleep restriction and the fatigue of an officer does not stop just with that officer and the effects that fatigue and sleep restriction have on domestic situation, on family members generally, has been, has been well studied and that really has been explored. 
and um, and we see that you know it's it's it, it, there are some there are, I don't know about similar effects, but there are some serious effects on um, family members of of officers who are kind of consistently and routinely fatigued. Part of those, of course, are emotional. You know, if if an officer is finding it harder to manage his or her emotions. That can, of course, spill over. Part of it, if you, you know, is, is just related to shift work and related to time. If an officer is working in nights or graveyard, it's complicated, it's difficult, and, and that can cause a great strain on family if the officer is not able to see his or her family as much as, as, much as they'd like. You know, there's, there's many effects that can spill over. And, and honestly, that's really one of the reasons why when we encourage officers to educate themselves and, you know, engage in training about health and wellness and fatigue management, fatigue risk management, sleep hygiene, sleep education, we always do try and offer those to family members as well. One, because it could be very helpful for them, you know, I mean, they might experience sleep restriction and fatigue in their lives, but also really kind of understanding why it's so important and why it needs to be such a priority for officers to to not discount sleep and to not discount the effects of fatigue. So we, t- we talked about the family in a general sense. Can we focus on how sleep deprivation can affect the officer's child or teenager in school or other events like that? Absolutely. So part, you know, it affects the, the, the child or the teenager just in terms of, you know, the officer potentially not being able to see them as much as they would like. So that can certainly cause some issues as well. But also, you know, it potentially can set an example for kids and teenagers. We, we know that at that age, kids and teenagers really do need quite a lot of sleep. You know, they need more sleep than you think they should have, especially in the teenager side of things. You know, most teenagers really do require kind of at least nine hours of sleep a night. So there's numerous reasons how, you know, a police officer being particularly fatigued or particularly sleep restricted can affect um, the, the kids or the teens in that, in, in, that, in that home, in that household, you know, and, and, and part of it is just example setting. You know, I think it's really important for an officer to, to model, to role model that getting sleep and taking care of, of themselves is important, especially if they're, if they're advocating for their child or for their teenager to do that as well. So we've been talking a lot about the effects of sleep deprivation. Can we shift gears and talk about contributing factors of healthy sleep routines? So when I do sleep management or fatigue management or fatigue risk management workshops, I typically look at two different but very complementary factors. One is sleep hygiene and the other is fatigue countermeasures. So sleep hygiene is the idea of ways in which you can get the best possible sleep by you know, getting consistent and, and, and routine sleep habits, and also creating an environment which is really conducive to good quality sleep. And then fatigue countermeasures are assuming that at some times you're not going to get enough sleep and at some times you are going to be tired. And, and unfortunately, with, with working shifts, that, that is a little bit of reality of the job. What are the things that you can do to help boost your alertness in the moment and to help manage that and to help make the most of the sleep opportunity that you do have, even if that is a little bit shorter than you'd like? So what are indicators a sleep routine is unhealthy? 
So in terms of sleep hygiene, a couple of the things that we always advise, and these can be, you know, they can be really, really simple, but you might just not really have thought of them. Um, one is to make sure that your bedroom or your sleeping environment is cool, dark, and quiet. And, and cool is, is temperature-wise, cool is, is really important. You know, it, it definitely helps promote sleep if you have your bedroom a little bit colder than you think you might need. And then, of course, quiet and dark are particularly important as well. That can be challenging, of course, depending on home situation. And that, again, is one of those reasons why it's so important to bring your family on board and to help educate them in terms of why it is so important as, as much as possible to allow an opportunity for officers to sleep that's, uh, that's kind of quiet, as quiet as possible. So that's a big one with sleep hygiene. Another one is limiting uh, technology uh, before bed. That's a that's a big one, and, and you know that's for several reasons. One of which is the light that's emitted from from smart devices is quite bright. One way of helping with that is to actually activate the night shift mode to warm the light after a certain time or in a specified time. But then part of it is actually just the stimulating effect of being on a device. So we always advise, you know, trying to avoid technology, you know, certainly within an hour or so of wanting to fall asleep. Of course, avoiding uh, caffeine and alcohol, nicotine, any other, any other stimulant um, before bed is, is particularly important. Also, avoiding heavy exercise before you want to sleep is important because the body needs to be cool, needs to be cold to sleep. So if you raise your body temperature too much, the same, same idea of having a, a room that's, co that's cold, if you raise your body temperature too much, it's going to be hard for you to maintain good sleep. So that's another one as well. And then in terms of the fatigue countermeasures, and of course, there are lots more than these. I'm just kind of touching on a, a, a few of them just for anybody who's really struggling. But fatigue countermeasures, the, the important ones typically are caffeine. It is important, of course, to manage your, your caffeine addiction. Most of us do have some, at least some kind of caffeine addiction. So try and manage your tolerance for caffeine. But then, you know, also be aware that when you take caffeine, when you have coffee, for example, it's going to take at least half an hour for that to affect you. So if you're working graves and you know that at about 2 a.m. you're going to really, really struggle, don't wait until 2 a.m. to have your cup of coffee. The other uh, major ones in fatigue countermeasures are light therapy. So light uh, exposure when you, want to, when you want to be alert, when you want to wake up, and light avoidance when you want to wind down and when you want to get to sleep. Um, if you can't do, of course, the best way of doing this naturally is with sunlight. If that is not an option, one good alternative is to invest in a device such as a seasonal affective disorder lamp. They're, they're pretty widely available and, and they, can, they can really, really help. You don't need to stare directly into them. Just have them in your general vicinity as you're, as you're waking up. And then with light avoidance, if that's tricky, for example, if you're getting home and it's, uh, it's quite bright outside, providing that it's not going to increase your risk of, of drowsy driving, one option is to use dark glasses, for example, to block out some of that sunlight as you want to wind down. Other things include melatonin and, of course, strategic napping is a huge one. The best way of fighting fatigue is to, is to take a nap because, it, you know, at its core, sleep-related fatigue is only going to really go away with sleep. So strategic napping is a, is a really great one, is a particularly important one. When I say strategic napping, there are two types of nap 
that we talk about. One is a short nap, so that's less than 30 minutes. And it's important that it be less than 30 minutes because what you want to avoid is napping to the point where you go into deep sleep or slow wave sleep. Because if you wake up from that state, you're going to feel sleep inertia, which is that really, really groggy, kind of miserable feeling of um, being kind of dragged up out of sleep. So you want to try and avoid that if you can. Or um, a long nap, if feasible, um, is a, a full sleep cycle, about 90 to 100 minutes. So those are the types of nap that we advise, either a short one, which is about 20 minutes, or a long one, which is about 90. And those are the, the kind of the major sleep hygiene and fatigue countermeasures that we, that we talk about. Can we talk about how the family can help first responders in, in setting themselves up for successful sleep? Yes, absolutely. So one way that family members can um, can really, really help a police officer get decent quality sleep is to simply recognize how important it is. You know, so I mean, that's that's one of the, the major things. And and I know this is a lot easier said than done. Um, but just really recognizing that sleep is one of those things that if you if you kind of put it on the back burner or if you say, well, I've got so many other things to do, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to survive with a couple of hours less sleep than I need. Um, just, just know that that can have some really, really brutal and long-term effects, not just for the officer, but also for the family. So I would say that the, the one main thing is, is education and is for that family, you know, the family members to really understand that if an officer discounts sleep, it's going to have some really lasting effects. And then more concretely or more specifically, things that, have, that family members can do are trying to, uh, you know, trying to establish certain house rules, for example, you know, and this can be extremely challenging, of course, with, with small children. But, you know, if there's a set time that the officer is, is, is going to sleep, trying to avoid waking him or her during that time, unless it really is an emergency is particularly important keeping the house quiet and I think just generally supporting the officer in their ability to get good quality sleep. So we talked about how the family can help. We've talked about what good sleep looks like. What are some solutions to this prevalent issue of sleep deprivation as a whole? There are two main ways of looking at that question. Um, one is one is at the, at the organizational or the management level. Um, and then the other is at the individual officer level. And, and when I say the organizational or management level, basically what I mean is things like smart shift scheduling. So taking into account what types of shifts are, quote unquote, the best, knowing that, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. But in terms of timing, when is it a good idea to start and end your shifts? Duration, you know, we, we see eights, we see tens, we see twelves. And then rotation, you get everything from kind of rapid rotation, rapid forward rotation, for example, is like a day shift followed by an evening shift followed by a night shift to, um, you know, to officers being assigned a shift and for them staying on it for, for years, you know. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of different considerations at the, at the management level the organizational level. And, and for that, um, fatigue uh, risk management strategies are particularly important. I do think that every department should really consider being very thoughtful about how they assign shifts. 
of course, factors within the community are going to influence that as well. Um, but that's that's one thing that's particularly important at the individual officer level. So assuming that that an officer has has no control over what shift um, he or she is on, um, then really, you know, the, the the things that I've already spoken about in terms of sleep hygiene and fatigue countermeasures are going to be particularly important. One thing that we see, um, you know, one thing that I that I help officers with a lot is if they are working nights, if they are working graves, they'll they'll ask me. They'll say, well, by the time I get home. Let's say it's let's say it's eight a.m. Do I try and go to sleep right away? Do I sleep for as long as 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 possible and then get up and do the the family thing and whatnot before going back to work? Or do I come home? Do I sleep for a couple of hours? Do I get up, do whatever, and then sleep for a couple more before going back out on shift? And and you know, in in large part, that's going to depend on the the home situation. Um, but the second one that I described, that split sleep schedule, certainly can be quite effective. So, so a, a night shift officer shouldn't think that they have to get home and get, you know, eight hours sleep once they're home. That's it, it, it's it's going to be very very difficult for the body to even do that. You know, don't discount the power of naps. Don't think because your sleep isn't all happening in the one block, it's not as good. You know, there, there are lots of different options. And, and in part, it's kind of figuring out what's going to work with, with home life while, you know, not kind of discounting the importance of sleep. Can someone catch up on sleep that they may have lost? Yeah, so that's the concept of sleep debt, right? So if you, if you consistently sleep eight hours a night, which is fairly, fairly standard, if you consistently sleep that amount and then one night you, you only get six hours for whatever reason you're going to have a little bit of sleep debt. So that concept of, you know, that that's going to have to at some point be paid back. Now, it doesn't have to be paid back exactly or in kind. So that doesn't mean that the following night you'd need to get 10 hours of sleep. What it does mean is, you know, we, we estimate that you should try and pay it back kind of by half. So if I typically get eight hours a night, one night I get six hours, I should try and get as close to nine hours the following night. And that's really to, to kind of catch up or get back to baseline. Now, in the context of a cop who's working nights, for example, in a series of them, there's almost no way that they're going to avoid building up some type of sleep dash because the likelihood of them getting sufficient. And when I say sufficient, the guidelines are still kind of, you know, seven to nine hours a night. The vast majority of needs somewhere in that range. So if a night shift officer over a series of shifts is only getting four and a half, five hours, they're going to come out of that with a certain amount of sleep debt and that will have built up. So it really is important to pay that back because if you don't, that kind of chronic or routine sleep restriction is what's going to lead to all those things that we talked about at the start in terms of the long-term risk of disease and health and wellness problems. So, and we do see with, with police officers quite a lot that during their time off or their downtime, they do catch up and they do get several nights sleep where they're getting as much sleep as possible. And, and the idea, if, if feasible, the idea of sleep saturation, which is basically allowing yourself, allowing your body to sleep for as long as you possibly can. And again, that can be extremely challenging with other responsibilities and home life and kids and, and, and so on and so forth. But if that is an option that's available to you, um, that sleep saturation, even after a series of um, sleep restricted nights, it won't bring you back to perfect, not by any means, but it will bring you back to, let's say, kind of 
could have been down operating at about 50% and it'll top you back up. So do try, you know, obviously try and pay back that sleep as much as possible, but know that even a couple of really good night's sleep will bring you back up. So shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about the impact of scheduling and fatigue on daytime family activities. So can you tell me how do the effects of sleep and fatigue vary by shift? Yeah, that, and that's a great point. People assume that if an officer is work, or a first responder is working day shifts that they won't be tired, but that's not necessarily the case. I think each of the shifts come with a certain amount of challenges. Um, when it comes to kind of balancing work and home life. And a big part of that, of course, is going to depend on the, the length of the shift. So if an officer is working days, a series of days, and they're eight hours, and they're starting at 8 a.m., then those are going to be fairly, fairly straightforward to manage in terms of home life. But of course, in many situations, that's not the case. You know, if, if an officer is working a series of 12-hour days, for example, that still puts them at a pretty serious risk of not seeing their family a whole ton while they're um, while they're in a, a series of, of, of shift days. And also it puts them at risk for not getting enough sleep because if they're working 12s and their days start at 7am, for example, oftentimes they're going to be getting up really quite early. One thing that is quite important is the idea of morningness and eveningness. And what I mean by that is that we all fall somewhere on the morningness, eveningness spectrum, which is which is also called, you know, being a, a morning person, being a, a lark, or being an evening person, being an owl. So that's one thing that's really important to consider when you think about the shifts that an officer is on. If a night owl officer, an evening type officer, is assigned to day shifts, they're going to have a really, really hard time getting up and being alert early enough for the start of that shift. Likewise, you know, if a, if a, if a lark or a morning type person is assigned to a night shift, they're going to really, really struggle come the early hours of the morning to, to stay awake. So there are definitely some really important scheduling things in there. You know, typically officers or, you know, typically the way departments works is, is bidding by seniority, which I guess, you know, I understand can be a very effective way of doing things. But some departments are starting to look at the suitability of different officers for the different shifts. And if you have officers that are, you know, extreme evening type people, they might, they might not just be better suited to night shifts, but they might want to be on night shifts. So starting to, to factor that into the scheduling of the rostering process can be um, particularly, particularly effective. We have touched on the, on the topic of night shift a little bit. Can we go into more detail on how fatigue and sleep deprivation are compounded by night shifts? The big issue with night shift is this concept of circadian misalignment. And basically what that means, humans are not nocturnal animals. We are the opposite. We're diurnal. So we are, we are um, inclined to be awake when the sun is up and asleep when, when the sun is down. So working nights or graves, of course, goes, goes counter to that. So it's kind of similar to that feeling if, if you've experienced jet lag, if you've experienced crossing time zones and, and how just horribly out of whack your whole body feels. Um, working nights is, is similar to that. And it's kind of consistent or perpetual jet lag because you're, you know, you're, you're constantly flip-flopping. And, and officers typically 
Um, some might try and maintain that nocturnal schedule, but typically when officers have their days off, they're going to flip back to being awake during the day and asleep at night. So it's that constant um, disruption of your circadian rhythms. And that's one of the things that really compounds not just fatigue and not just difficulty getting enough good quality sleep, but also um, the, the risks of health and wellness problems because in large part those are driven um, with, with shift workers certainly those are driven by um, being awake when your body wants to uh, wants to sleep some of the weight issues for example are eating when your body doesn't really want to eat doesn't want to process food um, isn't as well designed to process food um, so that's that's how um, night shift workers for example are, are at higher risk for some gastrointestinal disorders so yeah, I think that there's there's a number of reasons why working nights is a little bit more problematic for um, not just for getting good quality sleep, but for all of the negative effects that follow on from not getting good quality sleep. What are best practices for emergency responders and their family when having to work the night shift? That is an extremely complicated question, and I hate to say this, but sometimes it will just depend. It will depend on what works best for that individual family, what works best for that individual officer. Um, you know, so things to consider are when sleep occurs. You know, so like I touched on before, does the officer come back and try and get as much sleep as possible? And then, for example, be awake um, during the period when the kids are home from school, going back off on shift. Or do they come back? Do they sleep for a period of time? Are they awake for a period of time and then sleep again and then go out? That might be more effective if the kids are not at school, if they're really little, for example. So, you know, I mean, in large part, how you manage your schedule and how you manage that, that you know, getting to spend good quality time with family is going to depend on your own personal situation. Um, the things that, that, that are super important, like I said, are, you know, it's so tempting to think, well, if I'm not going to see them, then I don't want to get that extra hour of sleep. I don't want to prioritize that because I don't want to, you know, make my family miss out, for example. But do just constantly keep in mind that if you are sacrificing sleep, if you're not getting enough sleep, you are still going to be negatively affecting your family. And better better that they get you for a shorter period of really good quality time than a longer period of time when you're um, when you're not really there you know when you're when you're distant or you're irritated or you're stressed out or you're any of those things that are exacerbated by fatigue and by sleep restriction have you seen any promising practices for first responders to maintain family connections while working night shifts just anecdotally, the ones I've heard about kind of go back to that balance between how much you involve your family with your job and that feeling of trying to find some kind of balance between communicating and, you know, letting your family know some of the challenges and why you might struggle or have a hard time with various things. Um, that, that seems, you know, at least anecdotally, that seems to be a really great strategy. Um, you know, and, and like I said, so many officers don't want to do that because they don't want to expose their family to any of the negative aspects of the job. But that, uh, you know, like I said, at least anecdotally seems to backfire a little bit. So kind of honest and open communication seems to be the way to go. You briefly mentioned the benefits of naps. 
but I think it should be restated. So how can napping help a fatigued person? And what are the benefits of napping for both officers, their families, and the agencies? Napping is the most effective fatigue countermeasure for sure. And like I mentioned before, there are certain different types of naps. The, the short nap or the, you know, the kind of the 20 to 30 minute nap is going to be very good and very effective for giving you a boost in alertness. It's not going to be as good for actually topping up that sleep, you know, paying back that sleep debt. What's really great for that, of course, is the, is the longer nap, the kind of 90 to 100 minute nap where you're sleeping for a whole sleep cycle. Those are great for, for managing your sleep debt and for paying it back a little bit. That's, um, that's certainly one thing to consider with naps. For the, uh, for the individual officer, I mean, of course, it's, like I said, one of those fatigue countermeasures that's extremely effective. So it's going to be beneficial for them, for the, for the agency or the organization. You know, typically there's been a kind of a, uh, a definite culture against napping, you know, certainly while on duty. However, there are a growing number of agencies that are starting to implement napping policies. And, and I have to say that I'm very much in favor of a, an agency at least considering that, you know, and, and, and in those agencies that have implemented it, they have not seen kind of abuse of the system. They've not seen, you know, people kind of taking advantage you know, there's this, there's this strong feeling of, you know, well, we don't pay you to sleep, but it's purely cultural because there are many, many shift working professions that do have this strong culture of not just scheduling, but almost mandating naps. Those include aviation, surgery, even firefighters. You know, I mean, there's, there's definite cultural differences, whereas we see some professions like policing, like nursing, for example, where for some reason it's just really, really frowned upon and, and some managers will just kind of put their hands up and say, no, that's, that's not something we're even going to consider. But I, I really would at the organizational level consider at least looking into napping policies because we do know that it is by far and away the most effective of the fatigue countermeasures. And, you know, we know what fatigue does for performance. We know what it does for interactions with community members. We know what it does for the, the long-term health and wellness of your officers for protecting human capital, for example. So, you know, definitely something to consider. And then from the family perspective, like I said, just having an officer who is better rested in, in the home is just going to generally make for a much, much happier home. Shifting gears back towards agencies and officers, I heard that you recently did a study of agencies which implemented a napping policy. Can you talk a little bit about how that study went and some of the results you've seen? Yeah, so it's important to note that actually the napping policy was not part of the um, was not part of the of the research design. It was actually a um, it was an outcome of the study. So I didn't kind of implement a napping policy and evaluate how effective it was. What, what, what we did was we, um, we implemented a fatigue management training course and, um, and, and measured um, officer sleep, health and wellness before and after. And then one of the consequences of this, one of the outcomes of this was that department then um, implemented a, a napping policy. So, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, anecdotally, following, following their progress with it, it, uh, it, it certainly has been very, very effective for them. And I do think it's extremely important for, for, for researchers, myself included, to, um, 
you know, if a department will allow us to do so to actually evaluate a, a napping policy and, and, and how much it, it changes um, sleep, health and wellness for, for officers. And then also, you know, consider some performance measures as well, how much it changes interactions with citizens, how much it changes citizen complaints, for example, use of force, all of the things that we know are connected um, to fatigue, but, um, you know, really need to study more in the field, not just in the lab. What are important things to know about napping for emergency responders and families? What are ideal napping conditions? That's a great question. Your ideal napping conditions are going to match your ideal sleeping conditions. So the things that I mentioned earlier about your sleep, sleep hygiene and your sleep environment, those you're going to want to also implement for your nap, if possible. Now, of course, if you're napping at home, that's a lot easier than if you're napping somewhere else. But, you know, if you're napping at home, trying to get your, your, your bedroom cold and dark and quiet. Dark can be a challenge, but certainly not impossible. I advise any first responder that works nights to invest in some really good quality blackout blinds. If you can't do that for whatever reason, consider a face mask or eye mask because that's uh, another effective way of blocking out light. So, you know, I think that the really matching those sleep hygiene tips that you're going to implement at night or at your main sleep period to when you're napping are particularly important. Likewise, you know, avoiding caffeine right before you nap, unless you're, you, you're doing an alerting nap. If you're wanting to sleep for 20 minutes, then caffeine immediately before you have that nap is an excellent idea because it'll not affect your ability to sleep for a brief period of time. And when you wake up, you'll have the effect of the caffeine. But if you're having a, a, a longer kind of a 90 minute full sleep cycle nap, then avoiding caffeine, alcohol, nicotine before you nap, avoiding heavy you know, exercise in general can be great uh, for alerting you. You know, it raises the body temperature. So exercising to wake yourself up is a great idea. That is all the questions I have for you. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the subject of healthy sleep for officers. Thank you so much. This is a, a topic that obviously is very near and dear to my heart, you know, not just because this is where the majority of my research is, but also because I think it is so important. It's so critical for the first responder community to really pay attention to fatigue and sleep as it relates to health and wellness and really promoting that culture of self-care. You know, I think that that's one of the biggest hurdles facing the um, police profession especially but first responders in general as well is just knowing that you know your ability to take care of yourself is really going to impact your ability to take care of anybody else and protect and serve anybody else this project was supported in whole or in part by cooperative agreement number 2018 ckw xk008 awarded by the u.s department of justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers, IACP, or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can visit learn.theiacp.org slash podcast to view show notes from today's episode and to find additional ways you can learn from leaders in the field.